This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2020. From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Beth Comstock, author and former vice chair of GE. Often we run from change. We think, oh my gosh, now's not the time. It's too much changing. Let's just wait for this to pass. And actually in those moments of change is, is when new opportunities arise and you grab them. How an aspiring journalist went from working in advertising and marketing to becoming the vice chair of General Electric. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Beth Comstock was, until a few years ago, one of the most prominent women in corporate America. In 2016, she made Forbes' list of the 100 most powerful women in the world. By the time she stepped down from her role as vice chairman at GE in 2017, she'd already had a huge impact on that company's transition into green energy. But her journey to the top of the corporate ladder was not necessarily the path she'd planned. Beth originally thought she'd become a doctor. And when that didn't work out, a science journalist. Beth grew up in a small town in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia called Winchester. After college, she got a job covering Virginia's House of Delegates for a small news organization and waited tables at a Mexican restaurant at night. Eventually, she landed in Washington, D.C., newly married with a young child, and got an entry-level job in publicity at NBC. I started working at NBC News. It was in the Washington News Bureau, just as GE bought, had acquired NBC. <laughs> um, so the news media was changing, literally, as, as I was building my career. Yeah. And... and um, how was it? I mean, so you're at NBC, and this is kind of your, your you say, was a, a challenging post. Why was it challenging? 
Well, the early days, it was more of a learning experience. Hmm. Uh, I guess in the back of my mind, I still thought maybe somehow I'd become a journalist. But the more obviously I worked in the publicity department, the more I realized I was moving away from that. So I had to get over, okay, you're not going to pursue journalism. I also just wasn't very confident. Hmm. And I think that was one of the things I came to realize there. I, I'd sit and watch the newsroom and the journalists, and I'd go to the editorial meetings. And I just realized that i I'm not that way. So I think there was my own um, awakening of what's my nature and what what's my style. And um, what, what then was that, by NBC- the way? You say that's not my way. What was um, what what? How did you perceive, you know, their way to be versus what your way was? Well, they were confident. Mm, yeah. <laughs> they were willing to put an idea out there. Yeah. I mean, at the time, it was Andrea Mitchell and Chris Wallace. Mm. They were they were the Cub White House reporters at the time, and I remember they would like be literally almost fist fighting in the in the White House uh, press room, and we'd get calls of you know they're fighting, and I just the 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 nerve the nerve in a good way that they had to ask tough questions and go after stories. I just wasn't that. That wasn't me at the yeah. time. So, so you stay with NBC for a couple of years in their PR department, and then they they eventually move you to New York. And I guess you would you'd sort of bounce around um, for the next several years doing PR for for CNN and then at CBS and then back to NBC. Um, and then you you in 1996, I think you got this pretty senior job, a senior uh, VP of corporate communications at NBC. Um, at that point, did you start to think of yourself as a leader, like and and maybe you know presumably more confident, or do you did you still kind of have that internal voice, sort of you know doubting yourself? Uh, I'm here to tell you, I that voice of doubt I still yeah. have. Yeah. I carried that with me. I mean, I've I've learned to talk back to it and answer it. But, um, but of course, at the same time, I was building confidence because I was learning to manage projects, then manage teams, um, and learning what I, I liked new, for example, news better than entertainment. I went to CBS. It was all entertainment. I liked, I liked news. Yeah. And I guess it was around what, like 1998, uh, a huge turning point in your life happens. Um, you get a call from Jack Welch, the the legendary and controversial, and certainly a, a legacy that's been reassessed um, CEO at, at GE, and he wants to talk to you. Um, first of all, were you like, how does he even know who I am? Or like, did you like, what, what was that about? What was going through your mind? Well, at that point, I was head of communications at NBC, right. um, so I had had some exposure to him. We had launched NBC and Microsoft had joined together to launch sure. MSNBC, yeah. so it put me in the in at least in the same room with him um, to plan events and get things going. Right. So I knew he was aware of me. We had spoken, and she had this amazing talent development process. And you come to realize you're being evaluated when you don't even know it. In fact, when he said he was on the floor above ours, he was, his office was like, come upstairs. I took my notepad because I thought for sure GE was selling NBC. That was the rumor every <laughs> that, other that's day. That's why you thought he was calling you. Yeah, exactly. So I go up like, okay, I've got to get a press release together and he wants to make sure I get it right. And he said, hey, I want you to come work for me and work for GE. <laughs> and I, it was the last thing on my mind. Truth be told, the week earlier, I had gone and interviewed at another media company wow. who had called me. I was happy there, but I thought my future was going to be in media. Yeah. Certainly, I never imagined I was going to go work for GE, which at the time I probably thought was the light bulb company. Right, right. 
huge conglomerate. It was multi, you know, yeah. you know conglomerate. I had gone to GE school and I knew it had other businesses, but I didn't really appreciate yeah. what it was. All right, so you go to GE to become VP of of corporate communications, working for Jack Welch in advertising. Yeah, yep. and um, what was it like? I mean, what was it? Um, you know, you see these movies about like. Um, these big, these corporate environments, like uh, I just saw Ford v. Ferrari, and you see, like, you know, every shot is Henry Ford III and then uh, all these white guys, you know, Lee Iacocca and all these guys around him. This is the late 90s, so it might have been somewhat different, but what was it? I mean, what was it like? Well, there weren't many women. There were certainly a few women who had had senior roles before me. Uh, I replaced a woman um, in the role. And um, I'll give you a sense of what it was like. Uh, I would go to the GE annual leadership meetings, one of my first ones. And um, they basically had so many men and so few women that they had to take over the women's bathrooms and turn them into men's rooms. And they made the women go to the bathroom like behind the kitchen. So that was my first introduction to, you know, the dynamics at GE. I'm happy to say it changed dramatically, but yeah, that sends a message. Uh, You got to go somewhere else to use the bathroom. Yeah. You've you've described yourself um, as an introvert. Um, Did you... Uh, did you find that at least initially when you first got to GE in a pretty senior role that um, your colleagues were collegial or or maybe not not so much? They were collegial. I, I think I was a bit of a anomaly on many levels. The, the, the gender issue was clear. I came out of media. Um, there weren't many people leaving NBC to go to GE at the time. Um, I was in communications and marketing, which was not... Uh, held and held held with the same esteem as say finance or engineering at mm. GE and I you know I wasn't a loudmouth so um, I sat in a lot of meetings without saying anything mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that worked in my favor all the time you would you wouldn't say anything because you were listening or because you were intimidated or both both I mean that's the good thing about being an introvert is we are good observers and listeners we're good synthesizers because we mostly pay attention but um we're not never I would have never been accused of being the life of the party yeah so you know I had to learn to put myself out there and plan to go to a meeting and make sure I I had a good idea I had researched and had a good question you had to find a way to make yourself known. Like one of the tricks I learned at that time was to just invite myself to meetings. Hmm. So I would say, call up, you know, often to their assistant and say, hey, I'm going to show up. So they're not surprised, but here's why. And usually it worked out. Yeah. I mean, a few times I got it wrong, but um, so you had to do those kind of things. And that sort of being a bit more aggressive than my nature was something I had to get comfortable with. Yeah. You, um, I mean, not not too long after um, Jack Welch's departure, um, which was right before nine eleven, um, you uh, you got a new CEO Jeff Immelt, and um, he promotes you to uh, to CMO, Chief Marketing Officer for the whole company. And I read that you um, he did something pretty remarkable, which is you you admitted that you didn't have a marketing background. You know that that you didn't go to business school, and this wasn't your area of expertise, and you were very kind of open about it. Like, I I don't know this. I'm going to learn it. Like, you literally got textbooks on marketing. Yeah. I mean, Jeff tapped me for the job. I knew advertising. I knew knew media. It's not like I knew nothing, but um, I hadn't gone to business school. And I was intimidated about it on one hand. So I did. I called up 
all the chief marketing officers that I could get in touch with. Uh, one in particular at the time was Jem Stengel of P&G, who was incredibly helpful. And I was just like, hey, can you answer some questions and things like they had this amazing um, institute for training of marketing. And I'm like, can you send me the curricula uh-huh. so I can see if it's good here? But yeah. also I was thinking like, I need to know it. Yeah. I called up headhunters, like who's good? I called up professors. I realized I had to go to school and I had to hire people. One of the things, uh, first acts was to hire chief marketing officers for all the various business units in GE because I realized if I didn't have that, I brought certain skills, but I needed people who did bring those skills. Yeah. So those were the things I, and you know, it's intimidating, but I had to learn what to ask and, and marketing is tough in that respect. It's a wide spectrum. Yes, it's brand building and advertising, but it's also strategy. It's also insights. It's sales and lead generation. And so the opportunity was there to say, we want marketing to be at the beginning of the process. Hmm. The strategy, ask where's the world going. So it was a lot about trends and insights because partly no one else was doing it at the time. Yeah, we'll do advertising, but that's what you do at the end. Hmm. So let's get involved in the beginning. Where is the market? Who is the customer? How, how, how much time did you give yourself to become a student of marketing? Um, 100 day, like one of those 100 day plans. Yeah. Obviously, I had to give myself years to feel competent in it, but I gave myself 90 to 100 days to get the basics, just the words to ask. Hmm. Um, you know, because you go into conversations, especially the CMOs I hired, they knew I hadn't had their training. And so in some respects, I was also saying, what questions should I be asking? Right. So you've, I mean, you've given yourself uh, at that point a hundred days. Um, you're now heading up marketing for one of the the biggest companies in the world, um, and and pretty soon, from what I understand, you run into a, a pretty big crisis. Um, uh, there was a report, I guess, that the EPA released about uh, GE polluting the Hudson River, and um, uh, people were understandably angry about this. Um, I mean, presumably you had to take on this crisis pretty quickly. I mean, do, do you remember it? Was it a tough time at the company? Sure. It had been ongoing. Uh, it was a big issue, especially in the Jack Welch days. Uh, Jack had chosen to really fight the EPA. And uh, by the time Jeff and I worked together, and again, if you've got marketing, understanding the market, the trends, we were recognizing we could play a different role. There was a different role for companies to to be more environmentally conscious, that it could be both economical and ecological. And so we took a different tactic. We um, convened thought leaders and people who were in NGOs, the very NGOs who had been fighting GE before and said, can you help us? Yeah. Can you help us open up? Can you help us get greener products for, that don't make our customers go broke, but help the environment. So it was a big turning point and very unexpected. And frankly, uh, people were critical about it. Yeah. They thought we were just looking to greenwash and say, geez, green. And um, we had to make sure that wasn't the case. Although I think, you know, that's always a criticism. Sure. You call, you called the initiative eco-imagination. Right. And, uh, and it was ridiculed. A lot of people, I mean, I think one of the quotes I read was somebody said it was the worst idea I've ever heard. Um, and I imagine... I think I mean, Jack Welch said that too. Okay, right. Um, you are relatively new in this job as CMO and you have this big idea. Let's, let's have this eco-imagination um, initiative where we re- really rethink how we approach the environment. And um, did you get a wide range of patronizing responses from 
from people uh, around you? Yes. Uh, I think it was just the shock of it. It was like, well, why would we ever do that? It's important to note, we pulled a team together from a couple of different GE businesses. It wasn't just our corporate team or myself, certainly. Um, Jeff Immelt had been out with customers and said, you know, they're asking more questions about clean technology. We should be able to answer, like, what should we do? So he gave us the prompt. And we spent a year in research. So it wasn't like we just woke up one day and said, hey, we have this crazy idea. Let's put dancing elephants on an ad and say we're green. Yeah. We, which was one of the ads we did. We, um, we, really dug deep and we held ourselves to a very high standard. We put all kinds of metrics behind it. And so it took us a while. It was like an internal, think of it as a grassroots movement in your company to introduce it to people, to explain it and give people time to get comfortable with it. But sure, at first blush, in fact, in one of the meetings, when we presented it to the senior leadership team, um, you know, some people thought it was just a horrible idea. I, I think at one point, Jeff Emelt told the New York Times, there were only two of us at that meeting who liked it, who thought it was a good idea. And, you know, it was him and me. Yeah. Which which but, matters, given that he was the CEO. Yeah, but helped, but, but ba- basically, the idea was, uh, you were saying to leaders around GE, look, our new policy is going to be this. You're going to be held to certain standards. You're going to have to what? I mean, were you saying like you're going to have to reduce emissions? You're going to have to create greener products, and and we're going to evaluate that, and we're going to put real muscle behind it. Was it that granular, or yeah. even more so? It was. It was even more granular. I mean, we basically said we are going to start to launch a new series of products. We're going to market them, and we're going to have a new standard of of what's acceptable. It has to be good for the environment and economical, meaning our customers have to be able to afford it, and it has to be able to show measurable impact for our customers Mm -hmm. in both ways. So we had the math and the the money behind it. And we were already making some of this kind of technology. Our research lab had a backlog of products Mm -hmm. that if we could speed them to market, we could we could do this. So that gave people great confidence. And I think that's important in change is that um, there has to be something believable about it. And that really helped. And even though there was skepticism and, and you know, media articles have talked about it as like sort of a hollow PR move, um, you, it eventually was proved to be successful and real. I think like Fast Company wrote a big piece about it um, a few years later saying this is real. This is a real thing. Yeah, we've had number of case studies. I mean, we were able to uh, absolutely show. I think you know, at the at the end of uh, my time there, we were generating thirty three zero billion dollars of sales for eco products. So our customers were buying, and we had a whole renewable business that had launched. It was it had entered into not only energy and transportation, but also healthcare. Hmm. I, I will say, I'm still disappointed when I look back historically that. Investors were the hardest stakeholder to get excited about it. Right. It was still in those early days, and I think that's changed, but frankly, maybe not enough. But the investor community, it was at the time they thought it was just a PR move. And even though we had all the data, they couldn't see the numbers yet. It was too far out. So you um, you launched this initiative. It, it finds some success and. Uh, and then I guess towards the end of 2005, you um, you are uh, either recruited or you decide to go to NBC to go back to television. Um, first of all, why? What? What? I mean, you have this huge job at GE um, as CMO. What? What? What was the pull of going back to to TV? Well, 
I always loved working at NBC. I loved media. And um, I'm about change. I, at this point, I've established myself in the company and we're about marketing's about change. Yeah. And NBC, the job was um, a traditional kind of advertising, marketing, sales uh, oversight. And then this exciting thing, which is where's the future of digital in media? You know, at the time it was just coming on the scene was YouTube. Um, and so it was a time of... Um, great excitement, but also great fear. There was a group of colleagues at NBC that would be like, oh, isn't that cute? Hmm. Cats playing the piano yeah. on video. Ha, ha, ha. And then there was another group where even the same person would quietly go, but you know what? Like, we don't know how to make videos of cats playing the piano. Yeah. We're like, I hope this doesn't take off. We're panicked. Yeah, I bet. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. And, and I mean, 2006, still, still early, right? Like you're, you're coming into a place where the TV business is making, I mean, the, the terrestrial TV business is where the money is. I mean that's terrestrial and cable. Uh, at this point, uh, NBC yeah. had acquired a big, uh, had added even more cable properties. Had done a big acquisition of Universal, which included cable, and so cable was the and its day cable had been the disruptor, and now cable was gaining speed. Yeah. Um, so it didn't seem you know digital was just small. I remember at the time uh, one of the leaders of the company was like, uh, "Just get away from me. Don't talk to me about um, you're just offering up digital pennies. I only care about analog." That was the fight at the time. And that was your charge to really usher NBC 
TV into the digital era. Like that was what yep. you were charged to. to yep. Yeah. And uh, and and it reminds me. I, I interviewed um, Ken Chenault, and uh, he talked about when he first got to American Express. Um, nobody wanted to talk about credit cards because their business was traveler's checks, right? That's how they made their money. Um, and uh, and it, was just, it seems crazy, right? But that was, that was what was paying the bills. And I can imagine that, you know, understandably, some people were like, enough with this digital stuff. Like that, you know, who's paying for that? Who's going to pay for exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and I remember the, the debates we'd have, the kind of dreaming and like thinking through the future scenarios, which I think that's, again, part of what an innovation or change team does. And I remember one conversation with one of our heads of programming saying, what happens when the program schedule goes away? And you would have thought I, you know, just said something. <laughs> yeah. and I didn't know the program schedule was good. Like, I, do I have any insight? Right. No. But you just learn to ask these questions right. of what ifs. And um, the idea of, you know, at the time, Netflix was still mailing Mailing, DVDs in red envelopes. So the idea that that people would binge watch something and that Netflix was named for the Internet of Movies, right? Netflix, like it was beyond comprehension. So that was that exact case. Like, no, we're not we're we're only going to use traveler's checks. Um, in your book, you write about um, one particularly powerful person at NBC, um, now head of CNN, Jeff Zucker, um, who you locked horns with a lot. He's sort of well known for being a um, uh, having strong opinions. I guess it's a bit charitable. Um, what What was your relationship with Jeff Zucker like? Well, it was at times great and at times horrible. We had mm. worked together. As I said, I had worked at NBC News previously. Uh, he was the head of the Today Show. I, I considered us work friends. Yeah. And so I come back. And one of the things that happens when you, like I'd gone to GE for a number of years and I come back and you remember each other from where you last left off. Yeah. And suddenly Jeff and I were in a position and um, there was going to be a, lead, a presumed leadership change at NBC. And there it was assumed that there was a horse race, if you will, and that hmm. Jeff and I were vying for the head of the network. Yeah. So you were almost almost pitted against each other as competitors. Yeah. And it was never something done internally. It was more of a surround sound um, uh, media. And um, I tried to put myself in his shoes Hmm. at some point um, because here I was coming back from the mothership. Many of the people thought I was at this point a corporate spy. They had right. forgotten that I actually had grown up in the same place as them. Yeah. And so they're like, okay, she's here to do MLT evil bidding. And she's, you know, and I was given responsibility for advertising, which is a big revenue generator for the company at that point. Um, so anyway, it was just, it was a lot of weird dynamics. And Jeff is the most competitive person on earth, which <laughs> is great if you're on his team. Yeah, And um, I would say it, it became one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. And some plays I did and some ways I handled things didn't suit either of us and certainly didn't help myself out. Sure. And he, he just, it, it, often it was asking for things to support us. And that was hard for him. And it was sort of the digital team against the Luddites. Hmm. And I don't think it helped us. Um, that being said, I think when you're a leader, by this time, Jeff gets promoted to the head of the network. And I think as a leader, you also have to create a lane for that kind of change and champion that kind of change um, with some of your traditional leaders. And he wasn't used to that role either. So it it fell apart a bit. You took some big swings, which I think is important because when you take big swings, you're going to strike out, right? I mean, the greatest, Reggie Jackson, one of the greatest home run hitters of all time, strikeout king too. Um, And you took some big swings, including the 
acquisition of iVillage, which which at the time probably seemed like the right move to make. Um, tell me about about that acquisition, what you learned from it, because eventually NBC kind of just fizzled out. Yeah, fizzled. Um, well, at the time, if I take you back to 2008 and 9, um, Everybody was hot for digital acquisitions. Yeah. Uh, uh, Google had just bought YouTube. Uh, Fox had bought MySpace. And we knew we wanted uh, a women's, pro- largely women's property. We thought it would go well with some of the, like Today Show and Bravo. And um, I think I was six weeks in the job at that point and iVillage came open and we swooped in and paid a ton of money for it and acquired it. I think the strategy, I still think the strategy was good in terms of aligning the, the communities, but I don't think we understood what it meant to be digital. So we bought an inferior technology platform. We didn't appreciate what it meant to really let the community breathe and bubble up ideas from within the community. You know, we kind of wanted to control it a bit. And then it became internal fiefdoms. Why is that team getting money and not me? You know, my cable network makes the money. This thing doesn't make as much money. So you get all the internal warfare. And iVillage um, became somewhat caught in the middle of that and uh, costs started coming out and I mean, you know all the things the dopey things that that established companies do we did did it you know I'm, I'm curious about this because when you take big swings and then they fail one reaction is to become risk averse more risk averse and then to kind of you know not take those big swings which is also a problem um, how did you respond to it I mean were you were you more risk averse or were you were you like you know what we got to move on and keep swinging well it it wasn't like uh you wake up one day and the i village is done it was a gradual kind of a thing i think for myself i i wish you know i learned that i could have hired different kinds of people who had more digital savvy and didn't know enough to do that so i think you have to say to yourself wow this didn't work what have i learned have i been given room to learn um and you know, luckily I worked in a company that allowed us the space to learn and we were still seeding other things. At the same time, we seeded what became Hulu. That worked out. The learnings that we had from not figuring everything out at iVillage helped us in some ways figure out. The biggest thing was we can't run this ourselves. We need an entrepreneur who's steeped in digital. Yeah, We can't do this on our own. That led first to NBC and Fox coming together and then to hiring Jason Kyler, who really created what became Hulu. Yeah. So, and the interesting thing was Fox learned that at the same time, they did the exact same mistake with MySpace. Sure, sure. They, they paid a little bit more, but about the same amount of money, totally messed it up. So we both had learned painfully gosh, we need partners. We need somebody who knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that was helpful. You left NBC in 2008. You went back to GE, the mothership. And this is, uh, you're about to enter uh, a, an incredibly challenging moment, the financial crisis, uh, subprime mortgage crisis. GE is, you know, it, it, it it's involved with all of these businesses. I mean, it's, it was not, I mean, I think Jack Welch had acquired all these companies, so he got into finance and banking and, and um, all, all different kinds of media, all different kinds of businesses. Um, and the, the business, the bottom line at GE was, was in, in crisis, right? Well, the financial crisis happened. 50% of the company was in financial services. Hmm. And um, 
uh, the part of the model was short-term debt and the, you know, all those windows closed. So it was a, it was a kind of one of those existential moments for the company. I mean, most people, even then, didn't, I don't think, realize that GE, most people thought GE brings good things to life, right? That it was, it was an electricity company. It, was a, it, was, it made turbines or whatever. I think most people, I don't think, realized GE, half of its business was in loans, Right. Well, certainly investors knew, but even then, I think over the course of my GE leadership career, there was just a lot more transparency mm. with companies, with stakeholders. There was a time when there was less interest in asking those things. Um, and we had to redefine what the company meant. We had been on a path to make it more about technology and innovation. Luckily, we had established that. But it was one of those moments of who are we? Hmm. Um, what do we mean? Um, and so I think the lesson in that is you're you're constantly doing that. I remember at the time when Jeff Immelt had come in, we had repositioned the company around technology. We were about you know imagining the future, making the future, imagination at work. And I remember people saying, "But like we already done this, yeah, but you have to keep doing it. The world changes, and you have to rearticulate. Why are you still relevant?" Yeah. You know, I'm curious, and, and as the CMO, you have limited control over this, um, certainly far less than the CEO. But GE's share prices continue to fall and fall and fall, and, and, and uh, it just got absolutely hammered. Um, and it just really kind of was spiraling downward. Um, and there have been so many, you know, postmortems written about this. Some people blame Jack Welch for acquiring all these different businesses. Some people blame Jeff Immelt, saying that his management was the problem. When you assess what happened to GE, what do you think? I mean, why did it start to slide so so dramatically? Well, I think if you look at a company like GE, I mean, first of all, it's a 130-plus-year-old yeah. company. You don't get to be that old without having ups and downs and living through a number of crises and bouncing back. So it's been a very resilient company, the ups and downs. I mean, being part of the leadership team when I was there, I mean, we were about growth. We did a lot of global growth. We grew top-line revenue. Um, I feel really proud of that. That being said, it was a very complicated and complex company. And there, the complication, I think, was tough. Um, there were layer, you know, as you globalize, as you add digital, as you add other things, they, you just often don't take out the old. You just layer on the new, and it became very complicated navigating complex marketplaces. And so as much as we tried to simplify and change, I'm not sure. I don't believe it was all fast enough. Uh, I also think there were factors at work too. You know, G got a short-term activist. There were a lot of different factors of people expecting near-term returns for things that needed more time to play out. Um, so it's just these things are never one answer, as you know. Yeah, I mean, I think when you joined, the, the stock price was like in the upper twenties, and I think now it's still sort of six and a half dollars or something like that. Um, yeah, seven. I think today. Yeah. You know, your your legacy um, was as a change leader at GE, sort of pushing for change and um, and in, I guess even sometimes using the challenges and the crises to implement change. You, you, you became the first female vice chair at GE and the huge role. I mean, just one of four vice chairs um, in the company, I think. And you wrote about this idea of change. I mean, this is sort of the theme of your book that came out after you left GE. Uh, in 2018 when your book came out. I mean, I want to ask you about these themes of change. Um, first of all, just to define for me 
why, I mean, the book is called The Power of Change. It's one of the, one of the titles. Define for me what, what it is about change that is, um, you know, that sort of animates the way you think about business. Yeah, well, I was very deliberate. I called the book, titled it Imagine It Forward. Um, you know, the uh, it, it, it's about courage, creativity, and the power of change. Mm. And so it's kind of twofold. You have to be able to imagine uh, something that's going to make something better. You're going to solve someone's problem. You have to Im- have that imagined power. And then you have to work to make the change happen. And what I think the the what we often we run from change. We think, oh my gosh, now's not the time. It's too much changing. Let's just wait for this to pass. And actually in those moments of change is is when new opportunities arise and you grab them. And so that was really the insight that I learned in my, my career there. You know, there's real power in change if you grab it and you make the changes that you need to make. Um, and what happens, and I, I'm sure you see this, we all see this in business, although I, I feel like now might be a little different, but usually what happens is I just have to focus on the now, yeah. what's happening now. I just can only deal with what I can control and what's in front of me. And your instinct is to not think about what's next, but you have to do both. And that is against our instinct. And um, I saw it work. And to me, the recipe is to imagine you know you have to build tomorrow and you have to work and make today as and you have to find room for both you have to yeah um one of the things that you you you've written about in the book is a conflict and we talked about this a little bit um of course at your time at nbc um but you you write basically that worthwhile change inevitably involves conflict and that to make change you have to embrace it and learn from it um, what do you say to people who don't like conflict? Because a lot of people, I don't like conflict sometimes. I like harmony. But, you, but we all understand intellectually conflict is necessary. But what happens when you don't want to do it? What do you, what do you say to people who, who, who avoid it? Well, I don't like conflict. Most of us, to your point, do not like conflict. What I learned about change, and this was a painful lesson, is the people who like change usually are the ones that feel like they have either some advantage out of it or some control over it. For most of us, change happens and it's not in our control. Um, So I think partly you have to understand the mindset and the dynamics in an organization of how people are absorbing the change. You have to give people, in a certain amount, you're pushing fast, but you're also giving people time to get comfortable with and say, what does this change mean for me? So to me, it was always like create a surround sound of change. What does that mean? Like get people comfortable. If it's a new way of working, work like right now, we've all been thrown into work from home. Um, We've all been able to get comfortable with it. Make it work for us. Hey, I need an extra hour off at lunchtime because my husband's doing his call and I got to take care of the kids. Like we're learning this. So people have to have room. I came to learn kind of my rule of thumb on this is the organization broke down to kind of a third, a third, a third, meaning there's a third of the people in most organizations who already see the need for it. They're just, they're dying to do it. They just either don't have the personal agency, haven't been given permission, or just don't see their way for it. Like give them the the room to go. There's a group in the middle that are the prove me people. They they're not against change. They're just not they sure that it's... They want you to make the case. Yeah. Yeah. And we need them. Like, mm-hmm. they're right. Yeah. Like, if they just follow the change people, God knows where you're going to end up sometimes. And then there's the group that is like, no, I don't like change and I'm not going to sign up for it. And 
Often in companies, we spend all of our time with that third group, the not going to change people. And we lose our energy. It's hard. As opposed to empowering that first group, having them serve as kind of the heroes for the middle group. And then you got to work on that last group. Some of them just need to be shown a different way, given room to find out how they can work. There's a lot of innovators in that group. And some of them probably just need a different job or maybe need to leave the company. And those are the tough things that often don't happen. When you are trying to make change, let's say you were at GE and you had these ideas and you really wanted to pursue them, but you didn't have Jeff Immelt at the top backing you up and saying, yep, you got the green lighter. Yep, listen to Beth. Um, Could you have done that? How would you have done – how would you have made those changes without that support? Yeah. I had to learn that actually sometimes saying Jeff says is the worst thing you can say. Right. Because then people are like, ugh, the boss <laughs> wants it. Well, I'm going to show you or who are you? So you, I think one of the things in, you learn in your career, or at least I felt it was important to learn, is you have to build up your own sphere of influence. And so one of the best ways I found was to go to – sometimes go to your biggest critic – the people who are like, oh, that's the dumbest idea. It's not going to work. And work with them and see if there's some way that you have a shared interest. And hey, you see a better path forward. Do you believe Do you believe the digitization of industry is happening? Yes. Okay, maybe you don't like the way we're saying it, but could you help build a better way of doing it? Um, what are the criticisms about the way we're thinking about it? How might we react to that? And then suddenly you have a new colleague, and you have a spokesperson that in some way is far more effective to then go and say, hey, you know, let me tell you about this idea that I give it to them. It can be their idea. That's often the hardest part. People don't want to give up their idea. They're like, yeah, but that was my idea. No, it wasn't. It was your way of bringing forth a trend to get some new change. Give it to them. Have them fight for it. So those are some of what you have to do because you're building up influence. You're, you're bringing, inviting other people in, asking them to make the idea better. You know, we are at a moment now of incredible change. I mean, a global pandemic, an economic crisis, and a huge um, racial reawakening and movement um, against racial injustice. Um, this is definitely a moment of extreme change and disruption. And um, and it's forced many of us, I hope, to reexamine our assumptions uh, about our country and the stories we've told ourselves about our country and um the assumptions we make about business, about capitalism, about who gets to succeed and who doesn't, um, who advances and who doesn't. Imagine you were CMO now at um, GE in this, at this time of a real reckoning and real um, intense conversation that is forcing, rightfully so, all of us to, um, to think differently and to educate ourselves. Um, what do you think – how do you think you would – Respond. What do you think you would do? Well, here's some things I would do, and I think we all can do. So make it real and theoretical at the same time. I mean, to me, I think some of these things should not surprise us, but they do. If you're out listening, you know when your employees feel they're not getting the promotions they need because you have a bias. You know your customers feel things aren't working. So the first thing I think for any of us to do is just, do we have the right feedback loops? Are we opening up and engaging with enough people who are different than us? If you want to be an innovator, you need to be and understand different perspectives. And the companies that get blindsided are when they have ignored the feedback 
they didn't want to hear it. It didn't go against what they believe that, you know, they're seeing. They didn't stop and go, could this be true? Let me listen more. Do I hear this from more people? So I think those are critical things. I think get good at pattern recognition. I mean, start to be good at, I'm seeing this um, I, now I'm seeing it a couple of times. Is there a trend building here? What does this mean for us? Um, and, you know, open up, invite other people in with different points of view to give them a shot. Um, and, and I bet, you know, I, I was big uh, at GE. If I were there, I'd still, any company, I, I think this idea of kind of open source, open source ideas, open source opinions. I mean, you have to moderate it. You have to organize it. It's not like just give me every idea. They're all good. But if you're blind to where those ideas come from, you'll get a lot more people in the organization who come from non-traditional backgrounds, who have different skin colors, religions, ethnic. I mean, it's amazing. I, I've mm. seen it. I know it. So I think those things, they, they really matter. Do you think that you were um, you were born to to lead, or that you actually had to learn how to become a leader? Um, I think I had to learn it mostly. I mean, I'm pretty bossy. I'm the oldest, and my brother and sister would tell you I'm still <laughs> very bossy, and I like being bossy, so I'm okay with that. I don't find that a bad word. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, ha be willing to kind of fight for something you think is right and be part of a team um, and try to go in a, in a direction. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think some of that you have to trust that in yourself. But oh my gosh, if it's not about learning, then you're missing it. I mean, it, it is a journey to learn about yourself. It's a journey to learn how to connect with others. It's a journey to learn about how to make a difference. You don't, you don't, you're not born with all that. Oh my gosh, no. That's Beth Comstock. She's the former vice chair of GE and author of the book, Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.